So, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Fowler. Uh, I'm a substitute preacher here at Redeemer. And so, if you're wondering why I'm up here and Jeremy's not, please ask him, because I'm wondering the same thing. So, you're stuck with me today for at least the next 10 minutes. So, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 511. And so, so far in Acts, we've witnessed the birth and the growth of the church, right? Uh, and it's felt like maybe Luke's a bit of an idealist, like things are just a little too good to be true. Because we see the apostles are completely different dudes from what they were in the Gospel of Luke. They're bold, they're eloquent, Peter's just rattling off sermons off the top of his head, uh, they're confounding the religious leaders. The church is growing at an insane pace. Thousands of people are being added daily. Everybody in the church is even vibing. They're getting along, right? They're selling their possessions. They're giving to people in need. They're eating together. They're praying together. They're worshiping together. Things are going well. But as we saw last week, Satan's not just sitting by idly on the sidelines. And so last week, Daniel was walking us through how the church started to face persecution from the Sadducees and the Pharisees, where they get Peter and John, take them to trial, they don't really have anything to charge them with, so they just slap their wrists and say, you know, don't preach about Jesus anymore, which of course then they are even more emboldened to go out and preach about Jesus. And so this week, Satan's going to change up his tactics, whereas last week he's attacking the outside of the church through persecution. This week, we're going to see him attack from the inside. So let's read the passage together, and we'll walk through it. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them, him was his own, for they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed to, together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So on a totally unrelated note, we're going to have a special time of offering where we pass the plate around, just give as you feel less. Uh, someone check on Jeremy, I think he had a stroke. <laughs> I'm really trying to get uninvited here. So, But in all seriousness, uh, Jer- when Jeremy told me a few weeks ago this was the passage that I was going to preach, uh, there was some shock and disbelief and eventually anger. So I was thinking, like, how could he do this to me? Uh, if you want to see, we have an hours-long gift war over text of how I was politely and impolitely telling him I'm not going to preach this passage. Because when you read it, this passage is brutal, right? It does not come across as positive or encouraging, right? This isn't going to be read on Caleb. So what in the world is going on here? Does God just really want your money that badly? Or does he strike you down for lying to him? When we look at other figures in the Bible and the sins they committed, and there's a long list, right? David and Bathsheba, Moses killing the Egyptian, Jacob and his whole family, right? They committed serious sins, and they weren't struck down. So what's going on? Why is the story in here? And I believe it's in here because God wants, us to, sh- wants to show us how seriously he takes hypocrisy and the dangers that it, po- it poses to the church. So back to the passage. And just a quick note here. Chapter breaks in the Bible are confusing. Okay, I'm admitting that. Uh, because Luke is actually using the end of chapter 4 to set up verse, uh, chapter 5. And so that's a good reminder for us when we're reading passages of Scripture to see the whole context of Scripture, lest we get some funky theology in our lives. And we don't want that. Okay? So back at verse 32. Again, like Luke told us in chapter 2, the entire church was of one heart and soul, and they had everything in common. There's great power and great grace that was resting upon the church. They were unified. They had an unstoppable momentum going on. There was a radical generosity that pervaded the church where they had possessions, but nobody was just holding on to them tight-fisted. They had an open-handed mindset when it came to possessions and money. And so it's with this backdrop that we see Luke introduce Barnabas. And this is actually the same Barnabas that's going to be accompanying Paul through his missionary journeys and the rest of Acts. Okay? And so what does Barnabas do? He sells a field and he lays the money at the apostles' feet. It doesn't say for how much, and that doesn't matter, because what does matter is that he took the entire proceeds of the field and gave it to the church, which is very generous and is a big enough deal that Luke had to mention it. And so, right, things are going great for the church. They're encouraged by this generosity. And then we get to chapter 5. Let's look at that again. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke is contrasting the two men here. Both are doing the same thing, but Ananias and his wife decide to hold back some of the money and tell the apostles that they only sold the field for what they donated to the church. And so what's their motivation here? You have to think, people are probably talking about Barnabas 
and what he did. You know, they're at the coffee pot getting donuts before Peter's sermon, and they're like, man, did you hear what Barnabas did? He sold a whole field. That's got to be worth like a denarius or something. You know, and so they're just talking, and you've got to think, Ananias and Sapphira see that, and they're like, I want some of that praise. They're coveting the praise of man. And here their hypocrisy is on display because they want to be recognized as being generous without being fully generous. They want the perceived righteousness without having to fully sacrifice. So I want to take a minute to define hypocrisy. That's a word that gets thrown around a ton today. It's actually a word that came from ancient Greece, and it means acting or to act. And so hypocrites were actually called by ancient Greeks, those were their actors, were hypocrites. And at the practice at that time would be instead of just hiring a bunch of actors, they would give their actors masks. And so you've probably seen these masks. They're the smiley faces or the frowny faces or the angry faces. And these actors would just put on a mask and that would be a whole new character that they're portraying. And so over the years, and largely thanks to Jesus, we see hypocrisy has changed from this original meaning of actor to now it means you don't practice what you preach. It's when your actions don't match up with your words and what you say you believe. It's a facade like the mask that the Greek actors use as pretending to be more righteous than you actually are. And it's no wonder that it's off-putting to people, right? Let's hearken back to 2020 when politicians who are so adamant about masking and social distancing saying, hey, if you don't do these things, you're killing grandma with your recklessness. And then a week later, they're caught at a party not wearing a mask, right? Outrage ensues. And it's, it's infuriating to watch, right? Nobody likes hypocrisy. And it's no surprise to us that Jesus doesn't like it either. Several times in the Gospels, we see him take the Pharisees to task over their hypocrisy. And actually, the entire chapter 3, 23 of Matthew is devoted to Jesus blasting the Pharisees on this issue. I'm going to look at Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, just to give you a little snippet of what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so when Jesus got angry, usually it was because of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, right? He called them actors because they're pretending to be righteous and good when in reality, inside, they're full of death. And this should resonate with us because if the church's behavior, the living out of the one another, is supposed to be this pleasing aroma to God and to those lost, then hypocrisy in the church has the aroma of the Tyson plant. If you don't know what I mean, just drive to Amarillo. You won't miss it, right? Hypocrisy is a wretched affliction on the church, and it leads to all kinds of damage. Many of you in this room have probably been wounded or burned by hypocrites in the church. And if we're being honest, that's probably made us put up our guard with other believers, uh, kept us away from church for a long time, Because as I was preparing for the sermon, I read a Lifeway poll 
that surveyed hundreds of people that had left the church, and they were asking them why. And the number one answer was 33% was because of hypocrites in the church. And so that leads us to one reason why hypocrisy is so dangerous to the church. It's because it ruins our witness to other people. So back in four, chapter 433, Luke says, the apostles were giving their testimony with great power. So what's the easiest way to undercut that power? Have the church not practice what it preaches. Let their actions undercut the message. So kids are a good example here. I didn't realize how much of a hypocrite I can be until I had kids. Um, we were doing a family movie night, and the movie ended a little bit before bedtime, like 10 minutes before bedtime. So the kids asked, can we watch a whole nother two-hour movie? Because, you know, it's not bedtime. And so we say, no, we need to get ready for bed, and we're trying to explain to them that, hey, we don't need to watch too much TV, okay? That's just not good for you. Let's get in bed. And I see Clara's wheels turning. She's like, but when you put us to bed, you and Mom stay up and watch TV and eat candy. <laughs> to which I say what probably every parent tells their kid, which is, be quiet and go to your room. You know? <laughs> but you can see my message of what I was telling the kids was undercut by my actions. And in the same way, we as the church, if we are living as hypocrites, then our testimony and witness to Jesus will be neutered of its effectiveness. Living lives visibly transformed by the gospel is what gives power to our testimony. Another reason why hypocrisy is dangerous to the church is because it's deceptive in multiple ways. Because not only are we deceiving others by pretending to be better than we are, but we ultimately end up deceiving ourselves. Because when you're pretending to be something you're not, maybe at the beginning you're pretty aware of that, but over time the more you tell yourself you're better than you are, the more you start to believe it. And church, if we let our lives be taken over by hypocrisy, then we are hardening our hearts to the church and to the Lord. It's a grace killer. And here's what I mean by that. In verse 33, Luke also says there was great grace upon the whole church. And I think this is not only the grace that God gives the church as a blessing, but also the grace that the church was showing each other. They were living out the one another's in Scripture, right? So they were praying for one another, bearing each other's burdens, caring and loving for one another. But if the church starts to pretend to be better off than they are, to put on a facade that says they don't struggle with sin, then how can you live out the one another's? How can they bear each other's burdens when there's no burdens to share? How can you experience God's grace when you don't struggle with sin? It's a grace killer. And the same is true for us today. If we are acting as we have our lives together, that things are great when they're not really great, that we don't struggle when actually the struggle is real, we're robbing the church, the people here at Redeemer, from showing each other grace. We are preventing ourselves from living out the one another. And that's bad enough on its own, right? But there's something even worse that hypocrisy makes us do. Let's look again at verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so, 
There's a lot going on in these two verses. But the main point is that Ananias and Sapphira's judgment doesn't come from lying to Peter and his church, but ultimately from lying to God. So how are they lying to God? Paul gives us some insight into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So what Paul and Peter are saying here is that we, as the church, are the new temple of God. As we saw in the beginning of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in those who follow Jesus, so that there's no more need for a physical temple building anymore. And so when Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive Peter in the church, they were lying to the Holy Spirit that resides in them. And Peter also acknowledges that Satan has a role in this, right? But Satan, while he's influencing Ananias and Sapphira, ultimately we see they are held responsible for this deceit. They are the ones that pay for it. Peter tells them, hey, you didn't have to do this, right? There was no command that said, give us all your money said, you went out of your way to do this thing. You contrived this in your heart. And this passage is also showing us the divinity of the Holy Spirit, where Peter says in verse 3, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then later in verse 4, he says, you lied to God. And this is the crux of the passage, that Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy is ultimately lying to God and defiling his temple. They're acting as though they are not greedy, desiring to hold on to their money as if they are not sinning. Even worse, they're trying to cover up a turd by spraying perfume on it. Right? And if you're like, that's crude, well, it is crude. It's gross. They're trying to mask their greed by making it appear as though they're generous. And we can all look at this and say, this isn't good. But a valid question remains, why is God so harsh with this? And it's a valid question because we have seen people do much worse than this, and they're still walking around. And ironically, later on in his life, Peter will be called out by Paul for his hypocrisy to Gentile believers in the church. But God doesn't strike him down. So what's the deal? And part of it is, in Acts, God pulls back the curtain of reality, and he shows us the spiritual reality of what's going on in real time. And so we've seen that with the flaming tongues that rest upon the apostles. That's the Holy Spirit showing that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We see the healing of people in real time. And that's showing us the restoration of the kingdom of God that's coming, both physically and spiritually. And here's no difference. Okay? God is showing the consequences of what will happen when we stand before him and our hearts are hardened by hypocrisy. He's showing the church and us today that he takes this seriously. This is a matter of life and death. And it's a scary lesson, but it's a lesson that he wants to steer into the minds of the church. <laughs> so there are events that happen in your life that stick with you. Uh, here's one of mine. So one summer day in Georgia, about 30 years ago, my older brother Jim was around 12 or 13. I don't know exactly how old he was. It was around that time in middle school when your brain kind of breaks for a few years. Uh, and so my dad told him, hey, we're going to go rotate the tires on my truck. 
And my dad wasn't of the mind to ask his kids for anything. He told you, we're going to do this thing, so you're going to go do this thing. So my brother had to leave his Nintendo, leave the comfort of an air-conditioned house, and go out and help my dad rotate these tires. And if you've never experienced the splendor of a Georgia summer day, uh, it's very hot and humid. So if you want to know what that feels like, just go into your shower, turn it on the hottest setting for 10 minutes and the heat, and that's about what it's like. And then change a tire in there. So it's not fun, it's not recommended. But Jim's out there, he's manning the tire iron, right? And he's taking the nuts off of the tire and his hands are scraping the concrete. My dad's barking orders at him left and right. Go get me this, get me that. And his anger is just rising, right? He's just getting more and more mad. And then he snaps when my dad says, hand me that wrench. So Jim stops what he's doing. He looks at him. How about you get your own dang wrench? And he didn't say dang. <laughs> and so he's like, as the words were coming out of his mouth, he knew, right? He knew he messed up. So he did what any 12-year-old boy would do when you realize your life is forfeit and take off, right? He's gone. So there's fields around my house in Georgia that have barbed wire fence. And Jim was running for one of those fields. And he's like, I saw the fence. And if I could just clear it, I'll be free. I can never come back home, but I'll be free, right? I'll be gone. I'll live with my cousin, whatever. And so he's running it. He's getting close. And then a hand descends from the heavens, grabs the back of my brother's neck, and my brother was destroyed. So... Needless to say, there was much fear among the Fowler siblings after that incident, but it, it stuck with us, right? Because there was a line you didn't cross with my dad, or it has serious consequences. So it's no coincidence in Luke, in this passage in Acts, that he writes twice that the church had great fear after witnessing this. And the fear that Luke is talking about is a godly fear, one of reverence and awe. And we're reminded here that God is holy, he's just, and he's ferociously protective of his church. And that there are not only temporary consequences of hypocrisy, but there's eternal ones as well. John puts it this way in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God is showing us that if you let hypocrisy take over your life, that you believe yourself to be better than you are, you don't see the sin that you need to repent of, there's going to be judgment waiting for you. And just like Ananias and Sapphira, we may think we're getting away with it in this life because we can put on convincing facades and fool people, but what do we gain from that? So what if we can fool people? What do we get from that? 80 years of a good name or good reputation? The problem is that when we die, we're not going to be judged by a jury of our peers. We're going to be judged by a God that knows and sees our hearts. And so in that day, are you going to rely on your counterfeit righteousness or are you going to rely on Jesus' righteousness? In Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he tells his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Church, we're all going to be found out. 
Nothing will stay hidden forever. So how do we stay on guard against hypocrisy? How do we combat it as a church today? Because of all the people in the world, we should be the quickest ones to root out and condemn hypocrisy. But I want to caution you, because if you're sitting here today, elbowing your spouse, like, listen up, buckwheat, right? Or thinking of all the lists of people that you want to point out hypocrisy, then you are in danger of being a hypocrite. Because our response to this passage should be, where, Lord, where am I hypocritical in my life? Where am I not being obedient to your will? Like Jesus taught us, let's remove the log in our eye before we point out the speck in someone else's. And so the first step in combating hypocrisy is to preach the gospel to yourself. It's to locate the areas in your life where hypocrisy is infiltrated and start repenting of it. I skipped 1 John 1, 1.9 on purpose. I'm going to go back there. Verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So thankfully, God is gracious enough to give us time to repent. And even in this passage, we see He gave Sapphira a chance in verse 8 when Peter asked her, Hey, did you sell this for so much? He's given her a way out. You can imagine the people in the room were giving her hand signals, like, don't do it. But she doubled down on the lie. In church, we also have a chance to repent. So we have to examine our hearts and be real with ourselves. And if you can't do that, then you need to ask the Holy Spirit, where are the blinders on in my life where I'm pretending to be better than I am? Repent of that, and he's faithful to forgive. Another way of examining your heart for hypocrisy to ask yourself this question. What areas of my life do I care about what people think the most? And if you can pinpoint these areas, there's a good chance that hypocrisy is lurking nearby. So do you care about your status? You know, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the house you live in? If so, you might be tempted to work crazy hours at the neglect of your family or hoard onto all of your resources because you have a lifestyle to fund and not be generous? Do you care about your social status, what people think of you? If so, you might be quick to jump on the chance to gossip or tear other people down. Do you care about what type of parent you look like? And if so, you might be overly harsh with your kids and angry at them when they make you look bad. And so this isn't where we just despair, right, and throw up our hands and say, well, we all sin, so we're all hypocrites. And it is true that we all sin, but it isn't hypocrisy when we repent. Because hypocrisy is when we act like we don't sin, so there is nothing to repent of. So this can look different for different people, because not many people are bold enough to say, I don't sin, right? But what hypocrites tend to do is elevate what they're good at and hide what they're bad at or the sin. So it's kind of like if you have unexpected company go, coming over in five minutes and your house is a wreck. Right? What do you do? You just take all the stuff in the living room and stuff it in a closet or a, or a bedroom, you know, bedroom, whatever, and get it all cleaned up. So they're like, oh, your house looks nice. You're like, thanks, don't go that way. Like, don't go in that room. Yeah, it looks good, right? Church, if we are internalizing the gospel, if we're living that out, then we're transparent about our sin and we're repenting of it daily. And that causes us to be humble with others because our justification before God is secured by Jesus' life 
death, and resurrection, not by anything that we did. So this is a call for you today to stop putting on faces with other people. Isn't it exhausting? You don't have to keep up appearances anymore. The good news is now that Jesus has covered you with his righteousness, you don't have to act like you're better than you really are. You can show people the real you, not this fake persona that you've created. Because the church is designed by God so you can let your guard down and have other believers walk alongside you and bear your burden. And that leads us to the next step in combating hypocrisy. To be in community with the church. And I don't mean just showing up on Sunday, drinking your coffee, listening to the sermon, and going home. I mean actually walking and living with people in this church. And you may be thinking, yeah, no thanks. Right? And that's probably because you've been burned by hypocrites in the church before. But hopefully, you've been around Redeemer long enough to see that we love Jesus and we are not perfect, and we are striving to be genuine and to live out the one another's with anyone that comes through that door. So part of how we do this at Redeemer, being in community with each other, is to be a, be a part of gospel communities, right? And GCs are not about just eating delicious food, which my GC does, 5.30, tonight at the Milligan House. So... It, GC is about making connections with other believers, deepening relationships so that we can be honest about our lives and struggles and we can show grace to each other. And part of showing grace to one another is holding each other accountable. Because God has placed other believers in our lives to help point out the blind spots that we can't see. And so when a brother or sister faithfully comes to you and lovingly points out, and I mean lovingly, guys, no drive-by truthings, like, hey... Maybe you shouldn't throw that at your kids, or maybe you shouldn't yell and cuss at them. Our first thought isn't to get on the defensive and say, yeah, well, you try living with them, or you, should, you wouldn't believe the week I had. So we are to live out, like James says in his letter, chapter 1, verse 19, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And if we do that, maybe we can see that what that brother or sister is trying to do is to bring our hypocrisy to light and keep us from hardening our hearts to the Lord. Hypocrisy is a spiritual cancer, and the only cure is the gospel. It corrupts from within, and it can drain the life of a church. In Georgia, there are massive oak trees that have been around for hundreds of years. They're huge. They have leaves on all the branches, the appearance of full life, but when a storm hits and they fall over, you're wondering, how is that possible? Because on the inside of the tree, half of it's rotten out. If we are not on guard against hypocrisy in our lives, in the lives of the brothers and sisters that we walk in here at Redeemer, then we are also going to find ourselves rotting away from the inside. In a few moments, the band's going to come up here and lead us in worship. If you want to talk or pray with someone, there'll be folks in the back. But if God's convicted you of an area where you're a hypocrite, turn from that and he is faithful to forgive. If that hypocrisy has impacted another person or persons, then make it right with them by apologizing and seeking their forgiveness. Redeemer, if we root out hypocrisy from our lives, there will be great power in our testimony, and God's grace will flow through our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son. 
that he gave us his righteousness and justifies us before you. I pray that your spirit will convict us where we are pretending in our lives, help us to root out hypocrisy from our hearts and from this church so that we may be a pleasing aroma to you. Give us eyes to see this threat seriously as you do, and give us grace when we fall short. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.